Thanks, Gavin. Good morning. My name's Julia. Uh, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done, just as you, w as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Five-day Bible study going to head out now with Justine and also study Matthew. Please keep your Bibles open, uh, Matthew chapter 8, that'd be really helpful, I'll open up my Bible to Matthew chapter 8, that'd be really helpful, there we go, alright, and I'm going to pray that God's going to help us to understand His Word and put it into practice by His Holy Spirit, so please join me, loving Father and Almighty God, we thank You for Your Word, we thank You that we're again looking at Matthew's uh, explanation and account of who Jesus was and what Jesus did and what it means for us. Lord, please work in us by your Holy Spirit to be convicted of your truths in God's Word and to also put them into practice in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've entitled this sermon, The Christology of Jesus. Christology means, ology means the study of something, whatever it is, and Christ means Saviour King, so Christology means the study of Jesus as the Saviour King. We see throughout the Gospels that Jesus is revealing to the world, as his three years of ministry, 
He's revealing to the world what it means that he is the Savior King. He's revealing to the world who he is as the Christ. So, this section is a real significant step forward in our understanding of the Christology of Jesus, our understanding of who he is as our Savior King. Jesus reveals something new. And Jesus has three unlikely encounters in these 17 verses of the God's, uh, Matthew's account of Jesus that we just read. There's three unlikely account, um, encounters, and we're going to understand why they're unlikely as we go. But first, I want to tell a joke. I have ever told a joke before, but I want to tell a joke. There's three men, I heard this joke the other day, three men trapped on a desert island, okay, and they're digging around for food because they're starving to death, and one of the men digs up a lamp. He digs up a lamp and he rubs a lamp and a genie pops out and the genie says, I'll give grant you three wishes, one each. And the first man says, well, I hate this stinking island and my son's burned and it's got blisters and things and I, I just hate it here. I really want to get back home to my family. Please send me back home to my family. So the genie says, wish granted. And he sends you back home to his family and he goes to see the local doctor and get his skin sorted out and he's happy as he's at the local doctor waiting to go in. The second man says to the genie, I hate this stinking island. I really want to go home and see my family and get back into my work. I'm an important man. I'm a busy man and I really want to get back to it. Please send me back home. So the genie says, wish granted. He gets back home. He sees his family. He's so happy and he's dressed and pressed, ready to head out for his day of work when the third man makes his wish. And he says to the third man, what's your wish? And the third man's not so bright. And the third man says, well... I don't think this island's that bad, but it's kind of lonely, and I really wish my friends were back here with me. So, poof, the genie grants his wish, and the two men are zapped back to the island, one wearing his hospital gown and one wearing his work stuff, both less than pleased. Um, it's, a, it's an ordinary joke, and it makes us think about these three men encountering a genie as we think about these three people encountering Jesus who's no mere genie, but he is the Son of God and he has all power to do whatever he wills. And these three people, they seem to know that. They seem to know that almost instinctively. They're three unlikely encounters that Jesus has our story today. Not three men, two men and one woman are encountering Jesus. Jesus is no mere strange genie. Jesus is one who knows them intimately, who loves them dearly and who has power to care for them and the will to care for them. So the, the context is Jesus has just preached his famous Sermon on the Mount to his disciples and to thousands of others who had gathered around to hear him teach and it's most likely that he taught them for days on the Sermon of the Mount and now here in chapter 8 it says in verse 1, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So he's just come down from his teaching and the people are fascinated by Jesus. They're really interested and they're following him along. His disciples, those who are his devout followers, will most certainly be there. But there's also thousands of others who weren't necessarily disciples. They were just interested in who this Jesus was. And so they follow him along. It's also interesting to note, we're eight chapters into Matthew's Gospel now and Jesus hasn't performed one miracle and that's unique amongst the Gospel writers. Jesus has been teaching with authority, he's resisted the devil, but there's been no miracle working yet 
but there will be in this chapter as he reveals more of what it means that he is the Christ, the true Son of God. So the first encounter is with a man with leprosy. He's a sick outsider. Because he has leprosy, he can't join the community in worship at the temple because he's unclean. And we thought about uncleanness at great length last year as we studied Leviticus. He comes to Jesus, he kneels at his feet. If you've got your Bible open, have a look. Open it back up if you haven't. Verse, chapter two, uh, verse 8, chapter 2. He kneels before Jesus and he says, <clears throat> Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, leprosy, we know leprosy today as a very debilitating mostly incurable, I would say. Is that right, Clem? Leprosy is fairly incurable today. Just skin disease. Um, back in, in the Bible, when it says leprosy, it can mean kind of any kind of significant skin disease, not necessarily leprosy as we know it today. But it's a significant skin disease, and it means he's unclean, and so he can't join in with his fellow Israelites to worship at the temple. Clearly, he's in great discomfort, and he's a social outcast because of his skin disease. He's desperate for healing, and he comes to Jesus in great humility. He throws himself at Jesus' feet, and he doesn't ask Jesus for anything. He just makes a statement, doesn't he? He doesn't say, Jesus, please heal my skin disease. He says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can heal my skin disease. I know you can. This man has faith in Jesus. He's got trust. He, he knows who Jesus is and what he can do. Now, imagine Jesus was sitting here today. Imagine you're sitting just over there in the middle there, a few rows in front of Julia. He's sitting there and uh, he's listening in. And imagine a man came in to our midst and he was coughing and he was spluttering and he was sweating from the fever and he saw where Jesus is. So he kind of made a beeline right through the middle there uh, to get to where Jesus is. As he got closer to Jesus, he says, Jesus, Jesus. If you're willing, you can make me clean of my coronavirus, right? How would you all react? How would I react if you came stumbling, coughing, spluttering, sweating, no mask? I've got coronavirus as he makes it to the middle of the room and he's headed for Jesus. And we all somewhat panic, right? We jump up, we head for the extremities of the room, probably the door. Imagine a couple of us kind of hang in the room and we keep watching as the rest of the crowd kind of bolt for the kids' rooms to grab their kids and make a beeline for the car. And Jesus doesn't panic. He doesn't panic. He doesn't run hysterically from the room. Now, it's kind of similar in those days if you had leprosy, like you're, you were unclean and people didn't want to be around you, couldn't be around you. They'd catch what you had and then they wouldn't be able to go and worship at the temple with the others. So imagine we've done the bolt and Jesus, a couple of us hang around to watch, I'm kind of perched in a corner here, fascinated with my mask on. And Jesus calmly steps up and he walks across to the man who's in a panic and the man falls at his feet. And he doesn't retract, but he reaches for the man and touches the man, intimately puts his hands on this man who is sick who is diseased. And he says two, two words in the text, actually. 
to the man two words in the original Greek, which kind of give it a bit more impact, and it hasn't come up in Greek on the screen, and that's disappointing when we've done the move to your computer. <laughs> this, he says two words to the man. One word, I am willing, and the second word is be clean. I am willing, be clean, and immediately the man is healed. Every spot, every bit of rash, every itch, every cell containing the virus that's causing the rash, causing the leprosy in his body, is healed, reversed, instantly, and the man is clean. How good's Jesus? Isn't he brilliant? His love and his care, he approaches the man, and in his power, he can heal the man, and he does, he's willing. And he told the man not to tell anyone because he's trying to reveal his Christology at his own pace. And of course, the man's so elated that he runs around and tells everybody that he knows, which impacts the course of kind of Jesus' revelation of himself to the world. But can you blame him? He's been healed by Jesus. He's back in with his community and he's so excited. The outsider has now been brought in. When you touch someone unclean, you expect to become unclean. But with Jesus, when he touches someone unclean, they become clean. When he touches someone sick, he doesn't get sick. They get healthy. This man is now clean, he's now healthy, and he's now included. He's brought in, not only to his own Israelite community, but to Christ's heavenly community. Now, if the leper's faith didn't impress you, the centurion surely will. Who can tell me why a centurion's called a centurion? This is not a rhetorical question. Why is he a centurion? Anyone? Hey? He's got a hundred men. Right. He's responsible for a hundred guys. He's not a hundred years old. He didn't just get a hundred with the bat playing cricket. He's got a hundred men in his command. He's a powerful man. He could be a Roman. Not necessarily a Roman. The text doesn't say... He could be a soldier of some description. He's definitely a Gentile, not an Israelite, not a Jew, not included in God's community, not descended from Israel, also excluded from worshipping the one true God because he's not a Jew, not part of God's chosen nation. But despite this, he sees Jesus for who he is and he comes to Jesus in his hour of need. And again, He's got great humility. He describes Jesus as Lord. And again, there's no demand of Jesus or even a request. There's simply a humble statement. Lord, my servant is suffering terribly. He says, my servant lies at home paralyzed, verse 6, suffering terribly. And again... Jesus offers the unthinkable. Jesus says, um, shall I come and heal him? Verse 7. Shall I come to your home and heal your servant? Jews did not associate with Gentiles. Not ever. Couldn't happen. Jews didn't associate with Gentiles. Jews certainly didn't enter the home of a Gentile because that would make them ritually unclean according to Levitical law. But here we are, this Gentile comes to Jesus, he explains his dilemma, his young servant's sick, and Jesus, seemingly unthinkably, says, oh no, that's terrible, mate, do you want me to come over and have a look and see what I can do? 
Now, Jesus isn't unthinking, ever. He's the Son of God. Every step, every word, every thought planned out before the beginning of time. Jesus knows that for a Jew to enter a Gentile home would normally result in that Jew becoming unclean. We know, and Jesus knows, that for Jesus to enter into a Gentile home does not make him unclean. It makes the home clean, the family clean. Now, what happens next in verses 8 to 12, if you've tuned out, tuned back in, is glorious. It's extraordinary, and you all need to see it. So please, please open your Bibles back up if you close it. Look at verses 8 to 12. Jesus does offer to come over and help. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, I'll tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He has authority over his men. And somehow, this centurion, this Gentile, truly understands who Jesus is. It's so clear. He knows he's unworthy to have Jesus in his home because he's a Gentile. He knows that Jesus has the authority of God, the Father himself. Because he says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. He knows the power that Jesus has, authority over sickness. He goes on, I too, I as well, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. The centurion's under the authority of the emperor. He does what he tells him. And the hundred soldiers are under his authority. They do what he tells them. Similarly, Jesus is under the authority of God with sickness under his authority. Sickness is under Jesus' authority. Wouldn't that be awesome as a parent? (laughs) Whenever your kids get sick, boom, go away, done. Boom, go away, done. Sickness is under the authority of Jesus. Fever, paralysis, COVID, under the authority of Jesus. The centurion gets it. He really grasps who Jesus is. He knows it. It's incredible. He's a Gentile. He's had no real teaching. And Jesus is thoroughly impressed. Look at verse 10. And he's about to say something absolutely scathing and insulting, really, for all of the would-be Jewish followers of him. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, Truly I tell you all, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Furthermore, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom now will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in all of Israel, with such great faith as this man. Wow! Not the disciples, not the chosen ones, not the Jewish leaders, not the teachers in the temple. No one with the faith of this centurion, who is a Gentile. A very, very unlikely man of faith. He understands who Jesus is. He trusts him. Many will come from far away. 
not just from the nation of Israel, from afar, from east and west, and they'll sit in heaven at God's great banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they'll be in the place of God's chosen people, the Jews, tragically, who won't have faith in Jesus like this man, the centurion. And tragically, many of God's chosen people, the Jews, because of their faithlessness, will be thrown out into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Simply put, friends, God's great and eternal banquet is on offer to anyone, to all of you, to all you know, if they will put their trust in Jesus. Jesus is not impressed by your family heritage. And he's not put off by your family heritage either. You might be European, African, Asian, Caucasian, descent, whatever. Jesus isn't particularly interested in where you've come from. You might be from a wealthy family. You might have grown up on the street. Jesus isn't particularly interested in your bank balance. Your father might, father might have been the Prime Minister of Australia or a convicted criminal who still is in custody. Jesus isn't interested in those things. Jesus seeks humble trust. And that's it. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from, Jesus is looking for people who will put their faith in him, humbly. That's it. Come to him. Admit you don't have all the answers. You are powerless. You do need his saving grace from your sin. And your seat at the great banquet in heaven for all eternity is assured. Or you can back yourself. You can bank on your own abilities and find yourself out in the dark where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let it be done, Jesus said, just as you have said. And that moment the centurion's servant was healed. He didn't even go to the servant. He just said, let it be done. And the servant was healed. It is very, very safe to assume that the centurion's faith was rewarded with eternal life. The Gentile outsider was welcomed in to God's great banquet in heaven with open arms through faith. How good is Jesus? Isn't he brilliant? We've talked about racism a lot and discrimination a lot this past year or so. Jesus is purely indiscriminate perfectly indiscriminate when it comes to race, class or creed. He could not be less interested in your heritage, your skin colour, your political ideologies. It doesn't matter. If you're humble and willing to throw your lot in with him, he's yours and you are his. And he also doesn't discriminate when it comes to gender. So there's a female outsider. Women were unable to worship at the temple in the same way as clean Jewish men. And we talked about that in great length. And we studied Leviticus last year. You've got to, I can't go into a great length now. Um, it's not because they were lesser than men. There's other reasons. And if you're interested and you've forgotten, 
I'm here today button right now, if you like. Won't be offended if you get on your smart device to fill in the form. Say, what are you talking about with the women? Can't quite worship in the same way as the men at the temple. What's that all about? Just ask me and I'll explain it. It's not a one-minute answer. Suffice to say, it's got nothing to do with equality. The women are equal with the men in importance and value and stature and standing before God. But under Old Testament law, they could not worship at the temple in the same way as the men. So interesting, we've got these three interesting people, these three unlikely people in a sense, three people who are a bit on the outer, one because he's sick, one because he's a Gentile, and one because she is a woman. And she's also gravely ill. All outsiders for different reasons, Jesus approaches them all. In this case, the woman doesn't approach Jesus. The two men approach Jesus, the woman doesn't, she's too unwell. And I think that is to show that you don't need to approach Jesus to be saved. He will come to you and save you. So, once again, in this little section with this woman being healed, verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him, just like that. There's a beautiful and heartwarming intimacy in Jesus healing again he touched the leper he touched the woman he comes to Peter's mother-in-law we know he can heal her without even meeting her he did it for the centurion servant but he goes to her and he enters the room and he holds her hand and she's healed Jesus is almighty and he's tender And he's a wonderful example for us men. He's almighty and he is tender. He has the great ability to have strong, powerful hands and touch women and children in his life with a tenderness of care. And we ought to model ourselves on him. Strong, powerful, responsible hands that touch the women and children in our life with a tenderness of care that is palpable to them. Jesus touches her and immediately she's completely healed. Fevers still kill people today, sometimes. They certainly killed people in the first century. This was certainly a life-threatening situation. She would have been gravely ill, but she's completely healed. There's no recovery. She jumps up. And typical for a faithful, hospitable woman, she gets to work straight away, ensuring her guests are comfortable and well-fed. How good is Jesus? And people see this in him. They see that he has great power and great compassion. And we're told many who are demon-possessed and sick came to him and he healed them all, all evening. He attended to people, cared for them, showed compassion, and he healed them. And revealed more of his Christology. He has power over evil spirits, over demons. He casts them out. He has power to tell sickness to go away. And sickness obeys his word. Why? Why? Why is he doing this? What do we learn of Jesus' Christology? What do we learn of what it means that Jesus is the Saviour King from these three short stories. Well, Matthew tells us in verse 17 why he's doing this. He says, This was to fill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. These healings point us to the cross and to his work in a couple of years' time as he hung upon a crude Roman cross. He did many, achieved many great things at the cross. Two things in particular stand out today. Firstly, he paid the price for our sin. He took up our infirmities upon himself at the cross, paid the price for our weakness, for our rebellion, for our not good enoughness to stand in God's presence. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. He's ushering in God's great and eternal kingdom where there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning, no more sickness, no more death in God's great kingdom. We get a window into that. Jesus can really do this. He really can create a perfect world for us to dwell in where sickness does not exist. No masks, no death in the kingdom of heaven. He bore our diseases. We're mostly fairly young and healthy in this room and I asked you last week how much you were yearning for the coming of Jesus. Find an elderly Christian who is sickly, find a person with chronic illnesses and ask them how much they're yearning for the coming of Jesus. They are yearning for Jesus to come and take away their pain and their sickness. And mature Christians like the centurion who grasp the incredible gift they have in Christ yearn to meet him face to face. We can't wait to meet him, can we? Our Lord and Saviour face to face. Can you imagine it? Falling at your feet just instinctively in awe. Embracing him instinctively in love. What a moment that will be. So to finish up, Jesus is offering salvation from death and disease for all who believe. Jesus is beginning to roll back the effects of sin in the world. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and we rebel against God, sin exists in the world. And the world is cursed. And sickness exists because of sin. But Jesus is rolling it back as he heals people and ultimately at the cross. Jesus is our Saviour, our Lord. He has power over sickness, power even over death, which he proved as he rose triumphant from the grave. He is Lord. And his cure for sin and eternal cure for all that ails us is on offer to all people, not just the Jews. No matter who you are, no matter how you feel, no matter your family or ethnic background, no matter your gender, God's grace through Jesus is accessible to you if you'll put your trust in him. Maybe you want to put your trust in him today. Maybe you've seen Jesus afresh this morning and you want to put your trust in him right now, right now, right now, right here in this place. If you want to put your trust in Jesus today, then can I invite you to pray the prayer on the screen? I'm going to lead us in this prayer in a moment. We're all going to bow our heads. We're all going to close our eyes. And I'm going to lead us in this prayer. Read it now before we do so, so that you know what it says. 
I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you want to pray along with me in the quietness of your mind, please do so and put your trust in Jesus. And if you want me to follow you up afterwards, then as we all bow our heads and as we all close our eyes, put your hand up just a little bit and I'll see and I'll follow you up after church and talk to you about the wonderful road ahead for you as a follower of Jesus. So everyone, please bow your heads. Please close your eyes. And if you want to put your trust in Jesus today and be followed up by me, then please raise your hand just a little bit and I'll see. Let's pray. Oh, lead us in prayer. You follow along in the quietness of your minds. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I have rebelled against you. I desire to live life my own way instead of your way. I have sinned. I am sorry for my sin and I turn away from it. I no longer want to live for myself. I want to live for you. Thank you for Jesus, for his life, for his willingness to die for my sin and for the hope that I have in his glorious resurrection. Please bless me with the Holy Spirit so that I can live my life for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Please raise your heads, please open your eyes. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, can I say to you, welcome into God's heavenly kingdom. It's a wonderful blessing. The angels rejoice in heaven at you being saved this day. And also, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, can I invite you to join in the Lord's Supper this morning, which we're about to enjoy. The Lord's Supper is for all followers of Jesus. And it reminds us of Jesus' body. As we eat the bread, we're reminded of Jesus' body given for us. And as we drink the juice, the grape juice, the juice of the vine, we're reminded of Jesus' blood shed for us. So I'll ask my helpers now to grab the bread and the juice we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper for the first time in a long time, right? It's been a long time since we've had the Lord's Supper, which has been a great shame. I'm really excited to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're a follower of Jesus, please join with us in celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's at the heart of the Christian life, is faith in Jesus. That's right at the heart. And so it's so important that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it's been such a disappointment the last number of months as we've been unable to celebrate the Lord's Supper because at the Lord's Supper we remember Jesus' death for us and we remember his glorious resurrection. We remember that we're forgiven for our sins. We don't get forgiven all over again. We remember that we are forgiven through our faith in Jesus, our once, once for all. John says, so John wrote a story about Jesus, same as Matthew. John writes, if anyone sins, anyone, we talked about that this morning, anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he also wrote in one of his letters, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, sorry, in his gospel, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The Lord's Supper originated with the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples it's an outward, visible, tangible sign that we have salvation through Jesus. We're invited to feed on him by faith as we eat bread and drink juice. And we're reminded of God's love for us unworthy ones, us outsiders who've been brought in through faith in Jesus. So it's good to repent of your sin 
on a regular basis, a daily basis, certainly, as we gather for the Lord's Supper, to recognise that you have sinned and a forgiveness is on offer through faith in Jesus. So let's pray this prayer of confession together, as it's right to do so. Please join me. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We're sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God's slow to anger, full of compassion. He forgives all who humbly repent and turn to his son Jesus, in whom there is now no condemnation. Amen. I'll say the words that are not bolded, and we'll say the words that are in bold all together. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We praise you especially for your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ, who by his death on the cross and rising to new life, offered the one true sacrifice for sin and obtained an eternal deliverance for his people. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. On the night before he died, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the meal, he took the cup, and again giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. We do this until he returns. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We'll distribute the bread and the juice now. And we will eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Take a moment now as the bread and the juice is handed out, if you like, to reflect upon not only the ways in which you fail God, but the ways in which he's shown you grace through Christ. Drink this, remembering that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Amen. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, outsiders, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace, and open the gate of glory. May we, who share Christ's body, live his risen life. We who drink his cup, bring life to others, as the Year 13 boys talked about this morning. We whom the Spirit lights, give light to the world, together. Keep us in this hope that we have grasped, so that we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name. Amen. How good was that?